The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hi, this is Greg Kilstrom. Welcome to Season 3 of The Agile World, where we discuss customer and employee experience, organizational and workforce transformation, and how business can adapt and continually improve in an agile age. The Agile World Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, you can go to my website at theagile.world and read my latest articles or get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, now available on Amazon and other retailers. My name is Greg Kilstrom, and I'm the host of the Agile World Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about mergers, acquisitions, and how to ensure a successful outcome when two or more company teams and cultures are merged. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Clint Kendrick, Chair of the HR M&A Roundtable. Uh, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me, Greg. So, Clint, uh, you've been part of a lot of M&A activity within your career, and, and a lot of what we hear on the outside, let's say, is, is talk of financial opportunities and, and financial considerations when we're talking about mergers and acquisitions. But you know, today we're going to talk a little bit about another very important consideration when companies do a merger, and that's uh, things like retaining key talent and other HR-related uh, issues, uh, which have an effect on both short and long-term productivity and even things like long-term innovation. Um, so your first book, uh, The HR Practitioner's Guide to Mergers and Acquisitions Due Diligence, uh, filled a gap in the market. Uh, can you talk a, a little bit about why you wrote it and, and the challenges it helps businesses solve? Absolutely. So I wrote the book for a few reasons. One of them, I was one of those acquired employees. In fact, I've been acquired a number of times in my career. A couple of times it really didn't affect me personally, but one of those times the company was so dramatically changing the way that I was compensated that I wouldn't have been able to pay my mortgage. Uh, they moved me from a, a base with a somewhat generous bonus to a situation where it was almost all bonus. And I had a family to take care of, so I walked away. And that experience left me really wondering how we can do M&A better because it affects real people and real people's lives. The reason for this book in particular is that the vast majority of M&A deals happen in the middle market. They're not the mega mergers that we hear about in the news where you know tens of thousands of employees from company A and tens of thousands of employees from company B come together. It really is much smaller teams being merged with either smaller teams or into larger organizations. And a lot of times those HR folks in those middle market companies, if there is an HR person at all, they really don't have the resources to go hire a big consulting firm to help guide them through it. So by putting this book together, I really tried to create a plug and play HR due diligence playbook for these smaller organizations that don't have the expertise and really can't afford the help. And when you consider that over 70% of M&A deals don't meet their financial goals, and that, that's not Clint's number, that's Harvard Business Review's number, 25% uh, of those leaders say that people, leadership, and culture issues are the primary drivers uh, of those challenges. 
So to me, it makes sense to pay attention up front to the factors that make roughly one in five M&A deals fail. Yeah, well, and I think with those mid-market, um, those mid-market mergers and acquisitions, there's, I mean, there's less talent to lose. So, you know, when a, when a large percentage of those walk out the door or are simply unproductive or disengaged, um, that it seems like that could even potentially have a bigger impact. Um, and, and, you know, when we talked before the show, you mentioned a term uh, called value leak. Um, and in this case, this is where good employees walk out the door of the merged entity, despite a big consideration in, in many cases of, of an acquisition or merger being uh, the talent that would come over as, as part of that. So can you talk a little bit more about this and, and how, uh, how do you coach or, or guide organizations in, in avoiding this? Yeah, absolutely. So value leak is a fairly broad term that refers to really any factor that makes the acquired company less valuable than the price that was paid for it. Uh, this could be things like the loss of key customers or supplier relationships or really anything that makes it more difficult to recoup the premium paid for the company. So in my experience as an HR guy, of course, I think about the people as one of the main causes of value leak. Depending on the industry, turnover after an M&A event can be anywhere from two to seven times the pre-deal turnover. And that effect, by the way, can last for years. Uh, when we see some studies of large organizations, they found a, a turnover effect that goes out for as much as a decade. It's, it's really wow. quite phenomenal. So when people leave, they take key knowledge and customers with them. So uh, I did a deal a couple of years ago where a salespeople left with an important customer relationship, and it took a million dollars out of the P&L right away. That customer was set to renew. They didn't renew. They took their business to a competitor. And it's because that salesperson didn't feel like he was being treated fairly. Um, I've seen situations, having worked in tech for quite a while, where somebody who was really critical to getting the code completed walked out the door in the middle of a project, and it took months to figure out where he was and what he was thinking. So that took time and money to replace. Um, I've also seen situations where it's not necessarily people, but processes. So uh, in one situation, I saw the hiring process change so dramatically that customer commitments were missed. And this is because a large organization swallowed a small organization. That small company was filling jobs in two or three days because of how they uh, got talent from a local technical college, but the big company had a process that took as many as a couple of months. And so they sat with a lot of vacant chairs and really upset some customers. Again, another example of value leak. So uh, in my mind, avoiding the human capital value leak is, is really about those key employees. It's usually accomplished by enticing those folks to stay with either cash or non-cash incentives. Uh, cash is pretty straightforward, right? I'm going to give you X number of dollars to stay in your chair and, and be productive for you know a period, usually one, two, three years is what I typically see. And we're going to incentivize you with some extra money to really put up with the inconvenience of this change. That's motivating to a certain degree, but I think most of us know that really talented people can usually find other opportunities, right? A players don't struggle to find work. Right. Um, so it's that non-cash piece that really makes a difference. So am I going to get to do something that's going to develop myself as a professional? Um, am I going to get a promotion as part of the deal? Uh, are there new responsibilities or a special pet project I can take on? 
Uh, and there's a really neat technique that um, we call a stay interview, and it's uh, gaining traction in HR circles over the last decade or so. And this is the idea that your manager sits down with you and talks about what keeps you at work. Like, why do you stay here? What's the kind of work that we could have you do? Uh, I think stay interviews are a great practice, by the way, Greg, not just in an M&A context, but I think that they're really a critical part of managing uh, a high-performing team. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely agree there. And so let's let's talk a little bit about another another key thing is which is culture and and integrating cultures and and I know you mentioned you're you're working on a book about this as well um during and and post M&A. So let's let's talk about a couple of considerations here. So uh compatibility. Let's let's start here. Um so you know, in addition to talent, um, you know, individual talent, how do you look for compatibility in, you know, team culture and 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 what tools can be used to assist in, in doing this? Sure. There are a ton of tools out there that allow organizations to really assess their cultural differences. Uh, in my mind, this starts at the very beginning of the due diligence process when one company is looking for acquisition targets they want to at least pay some mind to the culture, and they're probably not going to use a formal assessment tool at that point. It's, it's going to be a little bit more of a art than science. Uh, as more information comes in, ideally, that cultural compatibility assessment should mature and become more complicated. Um, and there's a, a whole process of maturing that assessment that goes on there. But really, at the end of the day, there are a ton of tools out there. And in my opinion, the best tool is the tool that you'll use, right? Rather than ignoring culture altogether, find one and use it. Um, And if we look at what these tools do, Greg, these tools look for basic differences in how people get work done in the organization. And this includes everything from top-down communications, uh, decision rights, how peer interactions occur, And they also include how external stakeholders like customers and suppliers are are viewed and managed. And then finally, there are some other areas that aren't covered by most of the traditional tools out there, but I think are very important as you near uh, the the point where you're going to make that acquisition happen. And I call those the three S's. And the three S's are secret sauce, synergies, and sacred cows. So secret sauce is really why company A is buying company B. What is that unique capability that company B is going to bring to company A? And you want to look at your integration plans and make sure that you don't destroy that secret sauce. So the example that I gave earlier, the secret sauce of of one company was their ability to fill jobs really quickly. Uh, The acquiring company destroyed that secret sauce and, and therefore lost value. Um, synergies, you know, if you're going to do something to that company to realize synergies, which is a, you know, overused term in some places, but in M&A, it specifically refers to how you're going to either make more money or cost less money to operate the business. You want to look at how those synergies are going to affect things. So if your synergy is to cross sell a bunch of stuff and you don't think uh, the two sales forces are going to be able to cross sell because they're compensated differently, you know, take that into account when you're looking at the culture. And then finally, sacred cows are those things that you just don't touch. Um, uh, I remember one company that uh, was very much a family atmosphere. And so, you know, they really wanted to keep that family atmosphere intact. And when the acquirer came in, they immediately parsed the company into haves and have nots. Some people got job offers, some people didn't. 
Some people got weird job offers. Some people got straightforward job offers. And it totally uh, violated that sacred cow of a family atmosphere where people are treated the same. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe along along those lines of the, the sacred cows, um, you know, another thing, this might um, relate to, to cultural compatibility as well, but let's it change agility. So, you know, when you go through, a, through an M&A, I've, I've done it a few times in, in my career as well. Um, there's... Um, you know, there's a lot of, in some cases, there's a lot of change that needs to happen. And in, in other cases, um, it's the other company changes and, and the other stays the same or, you know, but regardless, there's, there's, there's quite a bit of change that needs to happen in some degree. How do you, how do you look at that? And, and how do you measure that is, I mean, is that something similar to measuring culture? Or do you look at it differently? Yeah, so I think it's pretty similar to measuring. I mean, there are psychometric tools out there, and you could give everybody a, a personality assessment and and try and sort that out. But that's that's not really practical. Uh, I think a lot of times this becomes more art than science. And looking at things like, okay, what were some of the major changes this organization went through? What's the degree of the change, right? If if there's a long way to go between how company A does things and how company B does things. You know, it doesn't necessarily matter how agile your people are, you're going to exhaust them. So it really is quite situational in my experience. You know, I, I do think that there is a little bit of a myth, Greg, that uh, employees in small or, or high tech, you know, younger organizations are better able to work with the change. But uh, you should see what happens when Slack suddenly gets replaced by a, what the employees consider to be an antiquated email and instant messaging system, right? Um that's where change agility really comes through is we're changing how you do work. We're taking away this tool. We're putting another tool in place, you know, and it really doesn't matter how old the employees are or what kind of field or industry they're in or the age of the company. It really is about their ability to adapt to the new circumstances they're working in. Got it. Do you think uh, this is something that's getting enough attention in the M&A world, this, you know, this, whether it's change agility, whether it's me measuring culture, um, wh what are your thoughts there? Yeah, you know, Greg, this is one of those areas where I've actually seen quite a bit of change in my decade or so of working in M&A. Uh, when I first started, I actually didn't use the word culture. Uh, I once had a leader look at me and say, pour me a cup of culture. And uh, had I been thinking a little bit faster, I would have said, well, pour me a cup of profit and loss. <laughs> you know, they're, they're ideas. Um, yeah. Just I ended up using the term operational readiness for a long time because culture is about how people get work done in an organization. And, well, operational readiness was the closest I could come up with where I'd get any attention paid to it. But what I've seen in the last two or three years is a lot of the, the big companies like McKinsey and Deloitte publishing articles on culture and rolling out their own assessments and tools. And I think it's because of the failure rate of M&A. And like I said, a quarter of business leaders point specifically to culture as the reason for deal failure. So we've got a lot of deals that have gone south because uh, the culture wasn't managed appropriately. And I think businesses are finally starting to pay attention to that, which which does my very geeky little HR heart some good. Yeah, yeah, got it. So what about, uh, let's call it preemptive work? Uh, what can companies do now uh, to prepare for future M&A activity? 
Sure. I think it depends on whether a company is selling or a company is looking to buy. So a company that's selling really wants to pay attention to how the organization is managed. Uh, they want to make sure that there's some stability in it. When doing diligence on a, on a company that we're about to buy, we really look at things like who are the key talent? What is the level of turnover? Are, are the small legal and technical things taken care of? Um, and you know, some of those smaller legal and technical things can be managed after the fact, but having good talent in place and having people who are staying with the organization for longer periods of time, that's a little bit harder to fix during integration. So really keep an eye on the talent and how they're treated. Um, if a company's buying, I say have a really clear vision for the combined organization. You know, begin with the end in mind is a uh, a pretty typical mantra here. So, you know, understand what you're planning to do with that organization, how the people are going to be transitioned from uh, the organization, or if they're going to be transitioned at all, are they going to be left standalone? You know, really know where you're going with the people involved so that you can really step up and lead those folks through whatever the change process is, whether it's a big change or a little change. Got it. Well, uh, one last question uh, before we wrap things up, um, and one related to, to my work at, at CareerGig. Um, how do you see the freelance economy transforming the business landscape? Uh, you know, we've talked about talent, uh, you know, value leak and, and talent loss, and, and primarily, that, primarily that's talking about full-time employees. But, uh, you know, with growth of, of independent contractors, freelancers, and all of that, that's that's becoming a, a bigger and bigger part of of organizations, whether it's just the process they use or, or the the stable of talent, let's say that they that they like to keep. Um, how do you see all of that transforming in the in the M and A world and and value and and things like that? Yeah. You know, I have a couple of thoughts about this. You know, one, I'm I'm not a labor historian, but to me, the gig economy feels almost like a return to our roots. You know, prior to the Industrial Revolution, where there were workshops or, you know, cottage industries where people would work from home, contributing what they could to either, you know, larger companies uh, through what we'd now call subcontracting or gig work, or, you know, uh, with their own shop. And honestly, I personally think it's a great thing that people are reclaiming a level of freedom. Um, I work for a big company now. I've worked for big companies for most of my career, and it works great for me. doesn't work great for everybody. And so I'm really excited to see that kind of freedom and flexibility making its way into our mainstream. Um, as I look at it from the point of view of an M&A practitioner, uh, sorry about the doorbell there. Um, as I look at this from the point of view of an M&A practitioner, I'm seeing more and more organizations that are using freelancers. And to me, the, the thing that causes the biggest challenges for us is when the freelancers aren't handled properly. So there can be tax consequences, there can be employment law consequences that are outstanding. And it's really important for companies that are using freelancers to make sure that they're using them properly so there's not a big mess to clean up, especially if they're planning on selling their business. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, and to your point about the um, the the historical context, I mean, yeah, it's um, I think the low watermark as far as independent contractors was in the late seventies. It was like nine or ten percent of the U.S. workforce, and so you know, at the beginning of the of the twentieth century, it was a, it was a, it was basically what it is now. It was about in the 
30 to, to 40 percent. Um, we're growing to about 40 percent soon. So so, yeah, it does seem it does seem seem cyclical here. But um, but yeah, no, that's 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 interesting to hear that take on it, because I don't I don't think a lot of people are are taking that into account as you know, as, as talent pools are kind of shifting. So. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and I'm quite excited to see how this plays out. I really think that there's going to be a lot of legislative and regulatory changes that come up, and I think it's really important for people to make their voices heard with their elected officials and their government agencies so that they can see this shift in the way that they would like to see it shift. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree. Well, Clint, uh, thank you so much for joining the show. Um, for those listening, what's the best way for them to learn more and keep up with what you're doing? Sure. So I'm an open networker on LinkedIn. Just look for Clint Kendrick. That's uh, Clint with a K. Um, and if you're a person who's interested in people, leadership, and culture issues in the world of mergers and acquisitions, uh, they can visit our website at mandaroundtable.com. Great, great. Well, again, I'd like to thank Clint Kendrick, uh, chair of the H&R or HR M&A Roundtable for joining the show. Uh, thanks for listening uh, to The Agile World with Greg Kilstrom. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to The Agile World Podcast, brought to you by Tech Systems. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can learn more and get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, from my website at theagile.world.